We are uh, in our second week of a sermon series uh, talking about honest questions that God asks us. And uh, today, we're going to look at a question, uh, a story, and a question that you have definitely heard before. And uh, I, I don't want you to do like my daughters did on the way to church today when I told them what the passage of Scripture was and what the parable was that we were going to look at. They're like, we've heard that one. And so if I was going to tell you something that you hadn't heard before, it would have to be something that is not in the Bible, okay? And so we're going to stick with the Bible on Sunday mornings. So here's the challenge, okay? Um, Just because you have maybe heard this passage before or read it personally in your devotional life doesn't mean that there's not ways that the Spirit wants to use it to motivate you to live for God. And the question this morning is, how are you doing with your neighboring? How are you doing with being a neighbor to the people that you meet? Uh, Don Whitney, a respected Christian author, has has said this, and I think there's so much truth to this. Um, When we talk about American culture, he said that we observe observe life through plates of glass, whether it's the screen on our phone or the screen on our um, uh, laptop or the screen on our iPad or the screen of our television or the screen of our windshield. We kind of go through life comfortable in our easy chair with our air conditioning on, watching life happen, but not actually engaging in life. Now, I know this will be a dated reference, but there was a great television show just a few years ago called Friends, and the joke was that people were better friends with Monica and Joey than they were with the people that lived around them. And so the problem is Monica and Joey are completely fictitious people, but people felt like they identified with these television characters, and yet they were incapable of sustaining a a meaningful relationship with the people that live around them. And so the challenge for us is, because we live in such an independent culture, I think neighboring and doing it well is exceptionally difficult for Americans. You know, they say that the the fastest growing segment of um, kind of American living environment is multi-housing units. So townhomes, apartments, things of that sort. That that is the highest, fastest growing um, living environment for Americans. And so you may have one big building like this, and you may have 10 families occupying apartment complexes, and the only thing that separates them is, is the thinnest of walls. And we have no idea who lives around us. We don't know their names. And so our neighborhoods are not very neighborly. There is no community in our communities And yet the Bible says that we have a responsibility to be a good neighbor. Not like State Farm, but the way that the Bible talks about this. So this morning, we're going to look at Jesus' command to love our neighbor as told through the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you're following along in your own copy of the Scriptures, we'll be in Luke chapter 10. Uh, the, The essential passages will be on the screen behind me. But uh, the pew Bible in front of you, it'll be be page 735. And as Jesus is in a circumstance where he tells this story, uh, the story actually begins a few verses before Jesus tells the story. And our story begins uh, specifically with a test for the teacher. A test for the teacher. Now that's not normal. Usually it is the teacher handing out the test. But as Jesus is going about his ministry of preaching and teaching... In verse 25, we pick up with it, and there's a test for Jesus. Look with me at Luke 10, beginning in verse 25. Just then, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus asked him. How do you read it? The lawyer answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. But, wanting to justify himself, the lawyer asked Jesus, Who exactly is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? This passage begins with the most excellent question. There's a man from a crowd that is obviously gathered around Jesus who stands up and makes his presence known to ask a really most excellent question. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What I think is remarkable remarkable about this is that he's asking a question about the most important subject of all time. He knows about eternal life. He knows that it is something that you can possess. What is, what is tragically, ironically fatal about this story is that he very proudly and pompously assumes that he already has it because he asked the question to test him. It wasn't a legitimate question. He wasn't, he wasn't genuinely looking for his own interest. He was trying to catch Jesus in a trap. He's a lawyer, a person who is trained in the law, and he wants to see what this unschooled, untutored rabbi is going to say. And so it's not really a legitimate question. And as the story continues, he may know about eternal life, but he doesn't possess it. Now, I could have Troy and the band come back up, and we could offer an invitation right now, because if I think that there is a disease that infects the United States is that we have millions of people, perhaps even in our churches this morning, who know about eternal life, but they do not possess it. Those are two different things, friend. And listen, if that was it, knowing about it was what got you in, then every demon in Satan himself would be saved, because they certainly know about eternal life, but knowing about it is not equal to possessing it. Here's the thing that's crazy. Did you note what Jesus said and didn't say? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looked at him and said, Confess me as the Christ and repent of your sins, and you will be saved. That's not what he says. He says, What's the Bible say? Now, why did Jesus not deal with the question? Well, he knew uh, Jesus was God. He knew that the guy was testing him. And he knew that this was kind of a political hot potato, that the guy was trying to force Jesus' hand to say something that would have gotten Jesus into big trouble prematurely. He knew that it was a trap. And the man was an expert in the law, so he didn't really, if he's an expert, have a legitimate question because he already knew the answer even before he asked the question. He just wanted to see what Jesus would say. And I love how Jesus, as God incarnate, points back to the Word of God for the answer. As a matter of fact, in the original language, the emphasis is even more uh, deliberate because the word order is changed in foreign languages, not the way that we do it grammatically in English. And so when the man says, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' response would have been this. The law, what does it say? The emphasis on what God has already revealed in the Old Testament. So when Jesus turns it back to the man, the man gives a perfect answer. He says, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. But again, knowledge of what to do is not doing it. 
The knowledge of what to do is one thing. Actually doing it is different. Knowledge is insufficient without action. And this brings us to a really important point. If we are genuinely and truly, authentically going to live the Christian life, Christian living requires, I'm going to use two big words, but I will define them. Christian living requires both orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy means that you have to believe right. You go to an orthodontist, and what does he do? He makes your teeth straight, unless you're from West Virginia, and then they, um, that doesn't happen. So orthodoxy is believing the right things. You can love going to church, but if you do not love the incarnation of God as, as Jesus Christ the Son who lived a sinless life to die for you, it doesn't matter how much you show up to church, you are not saved because you don't have orthodox doctrine. But orthodox doctrine will always do something really incredible. It will change practically the way that you live or the praxis, the practicality of how you live your life. So orthodoxy is right belief orthopraxy is right living. And we have, for whatever reason, divorced this couple that Jesus has joined together, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, and said, you can be orthodox and not live for Jesus whatsoever. And, you know, ramalama ding dong, you're saved. Listen, if Jesus is in your life, he will rearrange the furniture. He will make things different. He will cause you to live out what you believe. Because if you don't live it out, Friend, you don't really believe it. It's dem- your, your belief is demonstrated in your action. And so we don't want one without the other. We don't want orthopraxy without orthodoxy, but we don't want a dead orthodoxy that doesn't live for our Lord that has redeemed us. It is not enough to believe. That belief must lead to a transformation of our living in a renewing of our minds that we are living in a way that brings glory to God. The other issue that I think that we have to address here is when we look at Jesus' response, is he teaching salvation by works and not by grace? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What's the law say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, do this and you will live. Boy, doesn't that sound just a tad bit uncomfortable when we talk about salvation by grace? It sounds like Jesus just gave this guy a works answer well think about this how did jesus just describe love for god he used four withalls with all your heart with all your soul with all your strength with all your mind and you are to love your neighbor as yourself let me just make this assertion that Jesus is not teaching salvation by works here at all. He's trying to bring this young man to the end of himself and give him just a dose of humility to say, yeah, you know what? Um, maybe one of those withals I don't do so well. But no, he just assumes, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm getting it done. I'm doing it all. And Jesus is actually showing that it is impossible to love God perfectly and to love our neighbor perfectly. And let me just say this, if you could do it, if you could love God perfectly with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself, you wouldn't need saved. You would be fulfilling the law just as Jesus did. The problem is, I can't do that. And neither can you. You you think about this, this is really kind of a freaky thing. Um, the, The magnitude of this is really unbelievable. Because it 
when I say this and if the truth really sinks in, and I've shared it before, and I get the glazy-eyed look, okay? So if you can, if, if this will sink in, it will, it will change your view of yourself and it will change your view of God. God is that being who is so supremely perfect in all of his characteristics and attributes that there is nothing else that you should think about any millisecond of the day besides him. And if you do, it's idolatry. So according to that standard, what percentage of your time in the last 24 hours has not been focused on God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength? Overwhelmingly, 97, 98, 99, 99.9% of your time has not been focused on God and His glory? So even as redeemed people, we know that our sins are so manifold that God could send us to hell and be justified for doing it. That is amazing to think about. And he's trying, he's giving this guy a works answer to demonstrate the impossibility of earning it. You can't do this. And so it's, a, it's, it's astounding to me that to prove the point, the lawyer very self-righteously says, okay, well, I'm, I'm doing all of that. Um, the problem with my sanctification is not with what I do and how I love my neighbor. The problem is the Bible's not clear. So Jesus, who's my neighbor? Okay, if you say love the notice he didn't say, all right, what does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? He says, all right, if this is the standard, then who is my neighbor? Wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? The problem is not with the man. Did you notice this? The problem is with the unclarity of Scripture. Love your neighbor as yourself? Okay, well, gosh, boy, this would be a whole lot easier if the Bible just clarified what this whole neighbor thing means. So obviously there's some self-righteousness here because he thinks the Scripture needs to be clarified. And so Jesus takes up, takes up the question. And in order to answer it, Jesus tells a story in verses 30 through 37 in which he both asks this lawyer, and I believe in a contemporary fashion, he asks us, are you hard-hearted? Or are you compassionate? Are you hard-hearted? Or are you compassionate? Look at verses 30 through 37. So Jesus took up the question and he said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, they beat him up, and they fled, leaving him half dead. Eventually a priest happened to be going down that same road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And in the same way, a Levite when he arrived at the place, saw him and passed by on the other side as well. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring olive oil and wine. And then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, take care of him, and when I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever cost you spend. So which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. Jesus very masterfully takes an abstract theological concept, who is my neighbor? And by telling a story, he turns it into a very real world issue. And he tells a story with several actors. We don't actually see the robbers in the story. We see the, we see the effect of their action. But by the time Jesus is telling the stories, the, fl- the robbers have done fled the scene. Um, they're gone. And so the principal actors are the man who was robbed, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, and the innkeeper. 
But the emphasis is not on all of these participants in the story equally. The focus is explicitly upon the Samaritan. And everyone else really kind of serves illustrative purposes. And so we, we, we can, we can um, by deduction, figure out that the man who was robbed was Jewish. Because the fact that the Samaritan is such an outstanding feature of the story, if the man who was robbed was a non-Jewish person, Jesus would have made much of that. And the fact that he did it makes it very... Um, uh, wise and appropriate for us to assume that the man who is robbed is a Jew. And so when he is laying in the road, bloody, beat up, half dead, and you hear that there is a priest that is coming down the road, surely uh, Jewish listeners in the first century to Jesus' story would say, at last, help has arrived. A priest and a Levite? It almost sounds like a bad joke. A priest and a Levite walk into a bar, and um, it's not it. There's a punchline here, and it's that these religious leaders of Israel don't do anything. You think helps here now, but that doesn't prove to be the case. And here's what's even more damning about the situation. Jesus, in telling the story, makes it very clear that both the priest and the Levite saw the man. They saw him, and they did nothing. So here's the question. What in the world is the deal with these religious leaders? I mean, they just, not nice people. And the truth is, Bible teachers and preachers and Bible scholars have made all kinds of excuses. Well, they're priests and Levites, so maybe they're concerned about ceremonial purity. After all, they have to work in the temple, and they don't want to defile themselves. You know what? That's a bunch of baloney, okay? Two reasons. Number one, they're going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So whatever they did in Jerusalem, they've performed their service. They don't need to be concerned about ritual purity at all. Second thing, how do they get defiled? By touching a dead body. The problem is what's happening with the man. He's not quite dead yet. He's alive. It says that he's beat up and he's, 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 not, he's, not, you know, he's not dressed up for Easter photos. You know? He's not looking good. He's bloody. He's, he's busted up. He's half dead they're not going to mess with him. And so the ritual purity answer really can't be it. There's another thing. Maybe they were afraid of an ambush. You know, hey, you know, this guy on the side of the road, if I stop to help him, maybe the robbers haven't left yet and they're going to jump out and get me. You know, there might be some plausibility uh, for that. Maybe it's a trap. I think probably more um, accurately a way to think through the problem with religious leaders is um, a story uh, that's referred to in John chapter 9. Jesus and his disciples are walking around and they find a man who has been blind since he was born. You remember what the disciples asked Jesus? Who sinned, this man or his parents? What's the assumption? Whatever circumstance you're in, it is your fault because God is cursing you for something bad that you have done. And so it's quite possible that the priest and the Levite assume that this man got beat up, busted up, stolen from, and is half dead because it's an act of God's judgment. And far be it from me... If God wants to have mercy on him, God can have mercy on him. But far be it for me to interfere with God's judgment. I think that's got a lot more plausibility uh, than any of the other suggestions that are here. But regardless of what way you handle this issue of the religious leaders, regardless of what you think, what they do looks like hardness of heart. They just don't care to get involved. They don't... They have a schedule to keep. They've got other things that are more important. And the Jews were masters at turning Leviticus 19.8 on its head. You see, this whole idea of, um, you know, you have heard it said, love your 
neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, Jesus had to clarify that. He said, you've heard it said. Why did he have to say that? Because it was never written, hate your enemy. The, the ethic of love is not just a New Testament thing. Love for your enemies in the Old Testament. But they had turned it around to say, you know what, it's okay to love our, love our neighbor but hate our enemy. Or to say, love the Jews and hate all the non-Jews. Or to say, love your Pharisees and don't love the non-Pharisees. The challenge is, when it comes to defining who our neighbor is, your sinful and natural inclination is going to be, I'm going to love people that look like me, that act like me, that have the same values as me, and I'm going to draw that circle as small as possible, and I'm going to make myself look really good. If I've got to help old ladies across the street, well, then I don't look good because I don't do that much. But if I talk about you know, caring for other people just like me, I look better. So we see the religious leaders come and pass, and there's a hierarchy in, in, in Jewish uh, thinking. You have the priest who is the guy that officiates at the temple. You have the Levite who is the assistant to the priest. So when we hear that there's a third person, we hear his footsteps on the path. Oh, the priest and the Levite have passed by, but oh wait, I hear a third set of footprints. The natural assumption is to go down the hierarchy. Priest, Levite, Jewish layperson, but it's not a Jewish layperson, it's a Samaritan. And that is a complete and total surprise because the Jews hated the Samaritans. And guess what? The Samaritans hated the Jews. It was reciprocal. So the very fact that the Samaritan is doing something for a Jewish man is a surprise in itself. It's not like the Samaritan is a paragon of virtue. He is in this story. But there's a lot of just messed up history. When, when the, the kingdom of Israel was divided and they were captured and taken to Babylon, they were eventually, after a period of captivity, allowed to come back to the Holy Land and repopulate the Holy Land. And so in that intervening time, Jews that were left in the far northern kingdom intermarried with other races, and that's the Samaritans. The Samaritans were not pure, pure blood Jews. They were half-breeds because they had intermarried with other cultures and races. And so the, um, when the Jews come back and they rebuild the temple, uh, the rebuilding of the temple is a huge issue historically for the Jewish people. So the Samaritans see what the Jews are doing and, and, and they're kind of over there in, in Samaritan land going, ooh, 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 you're building the temple? We, we identify as Jews. We may not ethnically be pure-blooded Jews, but we identify religiously as Jews. Can we come help? How do you think the Jews responded to that? Oy vey. No way! No way. And so the beginning of this immense uh, conflict between uh, the Samaritans and the Jews began to happen. Uh, now, we don't know exactly when this happened, but the Samaritans got the Jews back. Uh, the hostility was not one way. Sometime between 9 and 6 BC, since the Jews would not let the Samaritans help build the temple, you know what the Samaritans did? They went and built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. You'll remember the story of the woman at the well in John 4. They have a whole debate about where they worship. We worship on Mount Gerizim, you worship on Mount Zion. They go and build their own temple, and sometime between 9 and 6 BC, the Samaritans take a bunch of pig bones and they throw it all through the temple on the eve of Passover so that the Jews will not be able to use the temple that they love and cherish so dearly. Now, how do you think the Jews felt about that? Let's just say there was intense, bitter, and very deep animosity. So what makes the Samaritan different? He's certainly not a religious leader. As a matter of fact, uh, in telling this story to a bunch of Jews, you would almost hear the <coughs> Samaritan. You know, that was a dirty word. You can hear people just going, a Samaritan? What made him different? Look at verse 33. 33. 
But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. By reference, that means that the priest and the Levite had none. They weren't concerned about glorifying God. They were concerned about their own convenience. The Samaritan had compassion. The others did not. Did you look at all the verbs attributed to the Samaritan? What did he do for this man? The the priest and the Levite saw him and passed by. The Samaritan saw him, had compassion. Verse 34, he went over to him. And he bandaged his wounds, and he poured olive oil in wine. That's an antiseptic. He was cleaning him up. And then he put him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And then the next day, he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper and said, you take care of him. When I come back, I will reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. You think finding a naked bloody, half-beaten-up guy is going to be a little bit of an inconvenience to you? You better believe it. You better believe it. And he goes, and all of these verbs, I think nine different verbs of what this Samaritan does for him, talks about how deeply he extended provision and care for him. It says that he took out two denarii, which a denarii was a day's wage, two days' wages. So for our purposes, if the average income in Rock Hill is about $45,000, and you divide that by, you know, how many days in a year, it's about $350. So today, on your way home from church, you run into somebody who's in trouble. It's going to be easy for you to give up $350 like that to somebody that you don't know. Listen, some of you, it'd be hard for you to give up $350 to somebody you do know. It'd be hard for you to give up $350 for someone you love. And yet you see this compassion that says, you know what? What is mine is yours if I can care for you. So why this story? It becomes very clear that the lawyer, in asking the question to Jesus, was trying to test him. And it says also that when he, uh, after they go through this dialogue, that the lawyer is trying to justify himself. When we mention the whole provision about neighbor love, the lawyer sought to limit his neighbor responsibility to only a few. And so if he could exclude you by making you a non-neighbor, then his responsibility shrank dramatically. If your neighbor's everyone, then you never stop. If your neighbor's this little group of people, you're okay. And I think the point is this. When it comes to your endeavors in the community, when it comes to your endeavors to use what God has entrusted to you to be a blessing to others, when it comes to... Um, this whole idea of loving your neighbor. Don't be like the lawyer and say, who's my neighbor? The point is this. When it comes to being a neighbor, don't assess your neighbor. Are you in or are you out? Do I, do I have responsibility for you? Do I not have responsibility? Don't assess your neighbor. Be a neighbor. You see, Jesus doesn't really ask the guys, answer the guy's question. He tells a story and says, Which of these people was a neighbor to the man? The one who showed him mercy. And he says, go and do the same. So back to the question. How does Jesus answer the question, how do we get eternal life? Well, in a very roundabout way, Jesus teaches that it's not our actions, but his. The emphasis is on how incapable we are of truly loving God or truly loving our neighbor. 
But he also says that a good indication of a new life in Christ is when we start to have his heart for people. Listen, if you have a heart that is just really hard to people in their circumstances, guys, listen, that should be a really serious gut check for you on whether you have been transformed by the redeeming grace of God. You cannot not love and have compassion for people in need perpetually and think that you're in a good spot in your relationship with God. The truth is something that I think you'd all, you would all affirm. Performing religious functions is one thing. Performing religious functions is one thing, but actually practicing the Christian life is quite another. And this lawyer was very content with, with performing religious functions, but he was not interested at all at practicing the Christian life. So what does that mean for us? A couple points of application. Number one, don't allow distinctions to be made in your treatment of people. You know, he's got money, so we're going to take care of him. Oh, we like his race, or we like his religion, or we like his shade of skin, or we like his social standing. The Bible condemns any kind of distinction that we make for people. We are even called to love sinners. People who don't go to church. So don't allow distinctions to be made in your treatment of people. Um, Kylie and I had a chance to go to um, a a garden this week down in uh, Merle's Inlet. And uh, we're faced with the ugly specter of our past when it comes to slavery. And it's incomprehensible to, to my sensibilities how we could treat people the way that we did. But it becomes easy when you don't think that they're fully human. The Bible says that all humanity is made in the image of God. And that doesn't mean that they're good, but it means that they're valuable because God has made them as his image bearers. And so we don't show distinctions on something artificial like what social class what religion or what race they are. We're to to treat everyone equally. But I think a question for us to ask, secondly, (laughs) is when it comes to your heart, does it function in your life as anything more than an organ that pumps blood? Does it really care for people? You know, you drive down the road today and you're going to see somebody with a flat tire or you're going to see a single mom on the side of the road who has just run out of gas And the chances are you're going to be more concerned about getting to the restaurant on time than you are with stopping and helping someone who's in need. And Fred, what a wonderful opportunity, even just in taking 10 minutes to run someone to the gas station and and buy a jug of gas to take back to the car. It's not going to be that much time. What a wonderful opportunity to say, you know what, I'm doing this not because I'm a good person. I'm doing this because God wants me to. And it's a wonderful way for me to show the love of God to you in a very practical way. What a wonderful opportunity to give testimony. Does your heart feel for people in need? And I can already hear the objections. Well, there's too many problems. Where in the world do we start? We can't make a dent in what's wrong with this world. You know what? There might be some truth to that. You can't help everywhere, but you can help somewhere. You can't solve every problem, but you can solve the problems that happen to be in your zip code that come along your path. So don't allow the objections to keep you from doing something. The challenge for us is we are, like the lawyer, very content at loving and serving people who will love and serve us back. You know, hey, I'm going to do this for, you know, Wesley. And then when it's, when it's my turn, Wesley, you know, Wesley, you remember what I did for you? Yeah, yeah, it's payback time, buddy. I need help now, you know. I'm going to do something for Troy, but I'm going to trust it. And when it's my time, 
of, of need that Troy's going to do it for me. Here's the thing that's crazy, okay? When you consider all of the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans, the Samaritan is ostensibly on a business trip, and he says, hey, I'm going to give you two days' wages to take care of him for a while. When I come back, I'll pay whatever the cost is. You take care of him. When the Samaritan comes back from his business trip, when he walks in the room and this Jewish man realizes that it's the Samaritan that rescued him, is the Jew even going to say thank you? It's one thing to serve people if you can get a pat on the back. It's another thing to serve people when they might spit in your face. And the Samaritan had no guarantee that the man that he had served with, with, with all of these actions was even going to be grateful. And so we have to understand, if we're going to serve the way that Jesus wants us to serve, people aren't going to look like us, and you know what? They might not smell like you. They might not be attractive. You might not have a guy who's naked, covered in blood, and half dead, but that might be where their kind of estate is, spiritually speaking. To expect non-Christians to act like Christians is the dumbest thing in the world. They'd be hypocrites if they, if they're a non-Christian trying to live like a Christian, they're a hypocrite. Just like a Christian living like a non-Christian is a hypocrite, we should not expect non-Christians to live like Christians. And so it's going to be messy. It's going to be not attractive. It might not be fun, and it's going to be inconvenient, but it brings God glory. One of the things that's just brought me a lot of conviction when we talk about being neighbors is I think about um, institutionally, our, our biggest and closest neighbor is Northside Elementary School. I had the opportunity, Reed and I went over, and we had the chance to talk with the um, uh, principal over there. And one of the things that she said is just a huge need is that Parents just don't care. She got 650 kids, and she goes, most of the parents just don't give a rip about whether their kids are fed, whether they're clean when they come to school, how they're doing with their grades. And she goes, here's the thing. By third grade, if a kid is not on grade reading level, there's like a 90% failure rate. Like third grade is it. Kids, kids' destinies are in one sense set academically by the time they get to third grade. And if they're still reading like they're hooked on phonics by third grade, they're done. They're done. You know, go ahead and, 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 and prepare them, uh, not for their best life now, but for whatever they can manage to eke by. And she said, you know, I don't know if there's people in your church that would just be willing to come by for a half an hour someday, someday during the school week to just read with kids. They read, and you just say, oh, you skipped a word. Oh, no, you didn't pronounce that one right. And you're just helping them to read. You don't have to be trained. You don't have to be a teacher. They said, if you've got people that want to meet with the same kid every week, we'll do that. If you want to do two hours, we'll give you four kids. You know, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll let you rotate around to different kids. And the challenge is when you do that, you might find out that you kind of like the kid and that there's not a lot of support that he gets at home. And then when Christmas rolls around, you're not just buying gifts for your kids. Maybe you're going to do something for him. It's going to cost you something. It's definitely going to cost you time. It's definitely going to cost you convenience. It might cost you your money. And some people go, oh, I, I need something like bada-boom, bada-bing that I can get done. Service just doesn't work like that. Compassion just doesn't work like that. So regardless of all the motivations and all the situations that are latent in this story, the Samaritan does the, the, does the right thing and he can rest in that knowledge. He can live with himself. He can put his head on his pillow at night knowing that he's done the right thing. He's done a good deed. What I love about this is his reputation. Obviously, he's a businessman that's traveled to this inn before because he walks up to the innkeeper and he says what? He goes, all right, here's, here's two days' wages. I want, you to, I want you to take care of him with this. And if it costs anything extra, I want you to take care of him. And when I come back, I'll settle accounts with you. He might be a Samaritan, but the fact that the innkeeper agrees to the terms 
is a very eloquent testimony to this man's uh, trust, responsibility, and reputation. He, his, his moral conduct is at a very high level. The innkeeper trusts him and does what he says. Go try that the next time you stay at a hotel. You tell the guy, people at the front desk that you want them to do all this stuff and see how they react to you. I'll venture to say that it's not like this. But ultimately, he can know that he's glorified God because his love for God motivated his love for people. And God's glorified in that. So here's the question. How are you doing with your neighboring? Do you even know who your neighbors are? Is there a community in your community? Is there neighborliness in your neighborhood? Because if there's anyone that the bar is set high for that to happen with, to be the catalyst for change, it's you, Christian. Be the leader in your neighborhood for finding out the areas of need, of being friendly, getting engaged in people's lives and doing what needs to be done to help them in their struggle and to point them to the Lord. Let's pray with me, please. God, we thank you for this word. We ask that you will forgive us for all of the many ways that we make service about us. It's what my gifts are. It's what is easy for me. It's what I like. It's what I want to do. And God, we don't put ourselves in other people's shoes and think about what is best for them. God, sometimes we see needs as inconveniences and disturbances and interruptions when you could be placing along our path all kinds of ways for us to serve our neighbor. And so, God, we need you to break our hearts. We need you to convict us by your spirit. We need you to invigorate our spirit with your spirit to to give us the power and the motivation to do the right thing. God, we need our eyes open to see the needs that are around us. Because in a world that is lost and dying and headed to hell, as we walk the pathways of life that you have us to walk, we may not have the opportunity to serve and testify to everyone. But we do have the opportunity to serve and to testify to the people along our pathway. And we pray that you will help us to do it. And God, we pray these things in the strong and powerful name of your Son.